So hey guys, we're back. We're back with another podcast, and this one um, is going to be about a gentleman who recently passed away, uh, Robert M. Utley. Is that correct? Robert M. Utley. Um, and he was somebody that unfortunately I knew about, but I never met. And what's even worse is that he lived here in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, which is exactly where I live. And I never got the chance to put him in a spot where I could go meet him or that we could talk on the phone. And then eventually he passed away. And uh, what a shame because I would have loved to have met him personally. Instead, I reached out to John Bosnecker and said, who is Mr. Utley's closest friend? And he said, well, you need to talk to Paul Hutton. And we have Paul Hutton on the phone today. And he is an American cultural historian, author, uh, documentary writer, and a TV personality. And he's got a new book out. Uh, The new book is called Apache Wars. um, And he'll expound on that a little bit more. Uh, Of course, I want to thank my friends at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest-running newspaper. Um, I urge you to become a subscriber, and that is through uh, tombstoneepitaph.com and also the Wild West History Association, and you can become a member at wildwesthistory.org. I'm not sure what to say about Mr. Utley because he's got an amazing career. And Paul sent me two PDFs through email that it literally is the story of a man's life in written, but I think his life was bigger than that. Uh, I was looking at photos on the internet and he, and I'm going to assume this was an, a remarkable man who did remarkable things in the early years of history research, especially Western history research, where we don't have the internet. And he was probably going out to libraries and places and small towns and places where there were records were kept and digging deep into files to write these these beautiful and wonderful books that we have today. Is is that pretty much correct, Mr. Hutton? Well, yes, there was, of course, uh, in the history business, a long period before the internet came uh, came upon us, and um, you had to go. The, you had to go to the archives, and fortunately for Bob, uh, much of his career, early career, was spent in Washington D.C. and in that area, so he had access to the National Archives, uh, and so. He was a consummate researcher. Everything uh, that he ever wrote was uh, deeply researched. And he combined that kind of exacting detail in research with a with a deft touch as a writer, a real graceful style. And uh, that placed his books, and he wrote 25 of them, that placed his books a niche above everyone else uh, working in the field. Um, and there's a consistency to Utley's work um, across time. And, uh, you know, people will come and they'll write one great book, and that's wonderful, you know. Uh, m- most folks never write a book, and, and that's all right, you know. But uh, even writing one, I think, is a, is a marvelous uh, achievement. Uh, but Bob was so so consistently productive. It was, it was just amazing that he... He, he had suffered a stroke a few years back, uh, actually about 15 now, if I, if I'm remembering correctly. And he was living, uh, near Austin at the time. And uh, I rushed, uh, seriously thinking, oh my God, I'm rushing to his deathbed. And, um, got to the hospital, um, in Austin. I was in Albuquerque at the time. And, and there he was propped up on pillows, all kinds of tubes and wires attached to him, uh, doing revisions on a computer. Uh, for his his latest book, it was just the most amazing thing. He, and he was going he was going to be fine uh, after the stroke, but uh, you know, I, I get a hangnail and I have to go to bed for three days. You know, so uh, he he had a real work ethic and he uh, he kept at it. He, he often, in fact, would tell his wife uh, Melody Webb, who's an accomplished historian in her own right, uh, that uh, he would die if he just if he didn't keep writing. And I think he, he really felt that way. He was working, working on a book the day he died. You 
was mm-hmm. always uh, always going. Ninety two years old and mm-hmm. still still productive and had had a book out just two years ago, uh, the last sovereign. So uh, an incredibly productive life, uh, certainly in publishing, but but also uh, he lived he, he he lived a life of, as a writer. He lived a life uh, as an important person in sort of the literary and intellectual world of Western history. And then he had a very important role in government service with the National Park Service and with the National Advisory Council for Historic Preservation. So there were there were all these different components uh, to his life. And so he's going to be sorely missed uh, in all of these fields. Of course, one of, the, one of the problems when you live so long, as Bob did, is that... Uh, those who were young and, and under his tutelage and, you know, consider himself, uh, consider him their mentor like I do, you know, are getting pretty long in the tooth ourselves. And so uh, uh, he's probably not as remembered as well, for instance, in the National Park Service as he once was, where he was essentially a, a sort of a towering figure, almost a godlike figure uh, but that, in the Park Service. But that brings up something extraordinary about his life because... All the Western history writers that I've met and spoken to in over the last year or so, they have jobs doing other things. They, they could be a, a photographer. They could be a rancher. They could be a um, movie producer or television producer. Or they could be like John Bosnecker, who's an attorney. They did something else. I was, I was shocked and blown away at the things that I saw about his National Park Service because he not only wrote about these amazing places, but he lived there. And he shared his knowledge as a Park Service employee with others in living in the places that he loved. It, that, that wasn't by chance. It was, it was really just his desire to be there and immerse himself in it. Was he like that all the time, immersed in Western history? He was, and when he could, you know, as he as he aged, it was more difficult to uh, to travel. But <laughs> excuse me, but as uh, early on, he certainly went to all the places he wrote about, which you know is something he taught me as well. You certainly want to visit the site if you can. Uh, it gives you such a different feel for what you're writing about, just to understand the terrain. Um, the Custer Battlefield, Little Bighorn Battlefield, is a prime example of that. If you've never been to the field, um, it's kind of difficult to understand that battle. But once you're there and you walk it, things become crystal clear. Now, there's still lots of controversy about the fight. But nevertheless, uh, you could see uh, the desperate situation uh, those cavalrymen were in. Um, and it makes, you know, it makes a big difference. When I was writing my... My Apache Wars book, in fact, uh, I uh, traveled to uh, Fort Bowie and uh, in Arizona, which uh, at Apache Pass, which is a critical point uh, in the story. And Bob had actually written the guidebook to uh, Fort Bowie and was instrumental in the establishment of that site, as he was in so many sites across the West. Uh, True West, several years ago, published a cover story on him called The Man Who Saved the West, and they weren't overstating the case. Uh, But anyway, I went there, and I was at the stage station where the famous Bascom affair took place, and in my mind, I had the geography all wrong. And so just standing there, suddenly I realized, oh my goodness, uh, you know, north is one way, south is another way. And, and you got to get it straight, so it saved saved me from making a grievous error, uh, which you sure don't want to make in writing history. But there was also a term that he used, or somebody deemed him as the dean of Western history. Is that a true assumption or true statement? I've certainly used that phrase many times. Uh, Western history is divided, you know, into several niches and. And um, Bob straddled the world between a popular history, what uh, academics sort of sneeringly refer to as popular history, which simply means history that is written for real people to read, mm-hmm. uh, and 
And then the academic world. Bob was a founding member of the Western History Association. He was the youngest president of the association way back in 1968. Uh, and that is the academic organization, about 1,500 members, uh, that is concerned with the history of the American West and the American frontier. And these days it's very ideologically driven. Uh, it wasn't that way when Bob was there. And Bob, in founding it, along with uh, with a, a group of distinguished academics, uh, Ray Allen Billington, uh, John Carroll, uh, Martin Ridge. Um, he was the perfect person to sort of straddle that those two worlds and hold them together because it was a very uneasy relationship between the academics and what they like to call the buffs. And, um, but Bob commanded so much respect from both groups that he kind of held them together. Years later, I would be the executive director of that organization. And uh, under my watch, in fact, it sort of started falling apart because of uh, uh, the sort of trends in the academic world of Western history today. And there's really no room for for the bus uh, mm -hmm. anymore. But still in the academic world, uh, Bob commanded a lot of uh, a lot of respect. It's it's noted that you met Paul. You met Paul. I mean, what I got this all written down that you not met Paul, but you'd met Robert in 1977. Can you go through? That's the, right. Can you go through that? How you ended up? Because it's a it's a great story from what I read about how the two of you met. Sure, I was a graduate student at that time. Um, at Indiana University. And Bob had been born in Arkansas, but he had been raised in Indiana. And he had gone um, to Purdue University and then gotten his master's degree at uh, Indiana. He never got the terminal degree, the doctorate. Uh, and I was a doctoral student at that time at IU. And I, Bob was coming to um, give a talk. Uh, he was getting some kind of distinguished alumni award, which you know, they give you so they can then pick your pockets later. Um, and he, uh, and I went to my mentor, Martin Ridge, and said, oh my God, you know, Bob Utley's coming. I would just die if only I could meet him. Is there any chance I could go pick him up at the airport in Indianapolis, which was 60 miles away? And uh, Ridge uh, thought this was a slight ambition, uh, and he never uh, ceased to remind me of it in the years mm -hmm. to come. Uh, just what a puppy I was, you know, <laughs> wagging my tail and begging for this opportunity to, mm -hmm. you know, drive 120 miles. Uh, and uh, and so I went and I picked up Bob, and uh, Bob and I, uh, our uh, initial mutual love in history was Custer and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And we both loved Custer. And he had written a book called Custer and the Great Controversy, which I had read and which I just absolutely loved. And... Um, so I picked him up and we talked Custer all the way, uh, all the way that, all the way back to Bloomington. And then I took him back to the airport, you know, afterward. And, uh, that, that was the beginning, you know, of, uh, you know, as Bogart said, Reigns and Casablanca, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And, uh, in, indeed it was. He became, uh, my professional mentor, uh, from that point on. He, he became, frankly, a surrogate father to me. And uh, a great promoter of my fortunes when I got my first job, which was as assistant editor of the Western Historical Quarterly Academic Magazine on Western History, I discovered that Bob had written an unsolicited letter of recommendation for me, which I'm sure is what got me the job. Uh, and that was a really important career step for me. And so, um, you know, I owed him a lot, and um, he was always there. And I wasn't the only one. There was uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, other historians, Jerome Green, Paul uh, Hedron, Doug McChristian, Chuck Rankin, Neil Mangum, Dave Clary, all these uh, people were in the Park Service, and um, he promoted their interests and, and kind of looked after them. They were kind of like Utley's boys. Mm. And uh, I was fortunate to, I guess, be his pet, and because um, our interests were so so similar. And then later, uh, when I wrote my dissertation, which was on uh, Philip Sheridan, the commander of the Army in the West after the Civil War, I was, by the time I had it done, I was pretty certain it was, uh, you know, ready just to uh, go right to the Pulitzer Prize Committee. And um, 
I sent it to Bob to look over before I submitted it to a publisher, and he wrote me back a scathing critique of the book, which he thought was way too academic, and this put me in the fetal position for about six months. Uh, and when I came out, I, I rewrote the book, and uh, the book went on to win um, all kinds of important prizes in both the academic world and the popular history world, and and made my career. And I owed all that to Bob. You know, your best friends are the ones who are really brutal to you. Mm-hmm. And um, he certainly was that way with uh, with Phil Sheridan and uh, made that book into you know, something of kind of a minor classic. And I certainly owed him that. And I tried to follow. I tried to follow his style. He has, he, he's, he's a better writer than I am. And I'm a good writer. Uh, but he had, had a real deft quality to his writing. Um, I have to work at it a lot harder than he did. Um and it's it's what I had done with my dissertation, rightly so, because it's a dissertation, was it was so academic, you know, and so deep in the weeds. And what he had me do was was uh, revise it so that it would appeal to a popular, a more popular audience. It was still published by an academic press. But uh, that really started my whole career. And I, in, in my career, much like Bob's, I've followed that pattern of living kind of uneasily in both those worlds, the world of the academics and the world of folks like you and me who just love Western history. And I assume most of your listeners who just love the history of the West and want to know more about it. Well, that's kind of reason for the podcast and the interviews because there's going to be a generation and multiple generations that will come after you, after me, that unfortunately will be in a digital age and unless they pick up a book and research it, they may never know who Bob Butley is, is in your travels with the two of you, because you wrote a lot about you guys going places. Um, I think there was a Kansas road trip that you wrote about. Were there, were there arguments during these times where, um, a subject was like so important to you or so important to him that neither one of you resolved or was it you always at some point had a come to Jesus moment and, and resolved everything? Oh, no. One of the best examples in Texas, we were neighbors for about 10 years in El Dorado, a community just to the uh, south of uh, Santa Fe. And in fact, I moved there because Bob and Melody lived there. And, uh, I had taken a position at the University of New Mexico, which was almost 80 miles away, but nevertheless, I wanted to, you know, live in El Dorado, and so, so did. And we were neighbors, and at that time, Bob was uh, writing, he wrote two important books, well, he wrote several important books while he was there, but two of them that we argued about, one was uh, a biography or a mutual hero Custer called Cavalier and Buckskin, and I kept arguing with him to be tougher on Custer. I thought he was way too easy on Custer. And um, and the other was his biography of Billy the Kid, which is still regarded by everybody as the best single book, you know, on Billy the Kid. Um, his biography of Billy the Kid. And I thought he was too hard on Billy. And I kept you know, arguing with him. Uh, vociferously to uh, ease up on the kid and treat the kid more romantically and more as a hero. Uh, uh, he did ease up a little bit uh, uh, on the kid, but not as much as I would have liked. And he dedicated the book to me, which was a great pleasure for me. Um, and uh, so, sure, we had we had these kind of debates all the time, and that was just great. Um, I don't think I ever had the kind of impact on his writing, though, that he had on mine. I mean, he really changed, uh, of course, you know, my whole life in terms of of, uh, of my writing career with him as the example. And indeed, we, uh, you were talking about trips. He and I once, from El Dorado, traveled out to Fort Riley, Kansas, where the Little Bighorn Associates were meeting. That's a used to be larger, but it's pretty good, still a pretty good-sized group of aficionados who studied the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And it had, uh, when I first joined it back in 1972, it was kind of a mixed group, and there were folks who loved Custer and folks who didn't, you know. Uh, but everyone in that group loved Bob. He was he was uh, sort of their, you know, living God. And I uh, often went to their meetings and was very active in the association. Bob 
Bob did not go as often, but they were, he had been told by a man named John Carroll, who was the um, sort of great poobah of the LBHA, that their book award for the year was going to go to Cavalier and Buckskin. And he really wanted Bob to be there to accept. Now, Carroll didn't know this for sure. A committee picked the book, but he was, he pulled all the strings in that outfit. So uh, he says, come along with me. We'll drive to Fort Riley, Kansas from, from Santa Fe and, and pick up this, this, this award. And, and on the way he lectured me and Bob was always great at uh, giving, uh, giving folks lectures, whether they wanted them or not. He lectured me on, you know, Hutton, uh, you always need to go get awards no matter how, uh, small the award is, you know, people care enough about you to give you an award. And I just thought this was so wonderful. His noblesse oblige that he was going to go honor the Custer bus with his presence. And yeah. off we went to Kansas. Great trip. So glad I, I did it. So we got there. And the, uh, he was sitting, he gave the banquet address and he was sitting at the head table because Carol thought that would be, uh, keeping close so he could just stand right up and get his award. Uh, and I was sitting in the pack and he, as he was giving his talk, and this is one of the things I had argued with him about, uh, he was being kind of rough on Custer. Well, this crowd just, you know, they worshiped Custer. And they worshiped Bob too, but you know, not as much as they worshiped Custer. And I, I, I sensed, uh, you know, uneasiness in the crowd. And, uh, so award time came and Carol got up, uh, he was president of the outfit to give the award for the best book of the year. And he says, and now I want to present, you know, the, the award for the best book of the year. And Utley was out of his seat, kind of heading toward the podium when Carol announced that the award was going to this book, uh, real deep in the weeds book on the journey of the seventh cavalry from Kentucky to Fort Abraham Lincoln, North Dakota, a day by day diary of their journey, not Bob's big, you know, epic biography of Custer. Uh, it's a real quiet, and it was a real quiet drive all the way back to Santa Fe. <laughs> and uh, finally, I started laughing, and Utley was not amused. And Utley uh, was a master of profanity, and uh, a string of, uh, of uh, cleverly uh, worded profanities came forth to just what to find out just what the hell I thought was so funny. Uh, and I told him that suddenly uh, I had just had an epiphany. And one of the movies I love the most is Treasure of Sierra Madre. And at the end of it, after uh, after all their companions have been killed and all their dreams of gold have turned to dust and they've lost everything, the remaining protagonists all break into laughter because they understand the folly of the human condition and how their own hubris had led them, you know, mm-hmm. to their own destruction. And, and I said, that's exactly what just happened to us. You know, went there so, sir, we were going to win, and and uh, the little big court associates just served us up a dose of humility. You know, because we a valuable lesson, one that our mutual hero Custer didn't learn until the last hour of his life, uh, but we we certainly learned it there. So it was just a funny moment, just uh, and uh, and uh, Ali won more awards from the Custer people, and they still love him, of course, because um, he wrote he wrote all of the foundational literature on the army in the West. Uh, he wrote the two key volumes on the army in the West uh, that everyone has to begin with if they're going to uh, study this area or if they just want to know about it. They just want to know about uh, the Indian Wars and, and the Indian fighting army. And so uh, on Facebook these days now, there are a lot of, uh, of course, uh, tributes to Bob and many of them from the Custer crowd. They mm-hmm. just, they still love him. Is not is, but was, I didn't know about the profanity thing, so that kind of makes me think about something else. Did, did Mr. Utley have favorites, like his favorite ice cream, favorite music, favorite foods, something that maybe, you know, the favorites that he would search, oh, we're going to Kansas, I got to stop over here at Bill's Ice Cream, or we're going up to Custer, I got to stop at this, this restaurant. Did he have favorites? Well, I'll tell you, he did take me to the best chicken fried steak joint I've ever uh, been in in my life. And I'm, I'm, I'll confess to being a snob about chicken fried steak. Mm-hmm. I mean, making a really good chicken fried steak is an art form. And even though we're close to Texas here in New Mexico, you can't get a good chicken fried steak in this, in this benighted, uh, state. Uh, but in Johnson City, Texas, he took, cause Melody, uh, his wife was the superintendent at, uh, 
the Johnson Ranch in Texas, the presidential ranch. And, uh, and in fact, she got me a signed copy of Lady Bird Johnson's uh, memoir. Um, and um, so they took me to this incredible hole-in-the-wall place in Johnson City, Texas, with this incredible uh, chicken fried steak, which I still dream about. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, just talking about it is making my mouth water. I should go back to Johnson City, Texas. Um, he was a great uh, lover of classical music, and this was one of the kind of the tragedies of his uh, of his life is that uh, in his in his youth he began he um, had an infection in his ears and it led to uh, even worse progression of hearing loss uh, and it was a constant race in the last thirty years between the um, his loss of hearing and you know new technologies. Finally, he had a cochlear implant, which which helped for a while. But here in in the last really uh, five six years, uh, he was re- pretty profoundly deaf. He could hear hear a bit, you know, but it was very hard. So, you know, he couldn't he couldn't uh, follow his love of classical music like like he had. He was a very cultured, erudite uh, man, a world traveler. He and Melody traveled all over the world. And uh, they were, in fact, planning a big trip to Australia when he died. So um, he's just uh, just a remarkable person. Hmm. You, you wrote once about, while we're talking about favorites, you wrote once, because it's my favorite story that you've written, about a dog that you had. Um, can well, you I, had, I had this uh, cocker spaniel named Corky that I got in Utah when I taught up at Utah State University. And this was, uh, uh, I loved this dog, but it was a highly annoying pooch to everyone else but me. And in fact, it was a, I, I'd gotten it as a gift for my wife at the time. And when we got divorced, she forced me to take the gift back. Uh, so I got Corky and a one-way ticket to Albuquerque. And, and it was a very adventurous trip. Uh, we Our U-Haul broke down right at the Ship Rock on the Navajo Reservation. So that was, a, that was an adventure. And um, Corky, you know, and I, you know, lived together until I remarried. And then uh, we moved to uh, Santa Fe and... Um, Often when I traveled, and I traveled a lot in those days, uh, Bob and Melody would sit Corky, and Corky had um, and Corky had this terrible habit of what I called the Chinese water torture bark. If you didn't do what he wanted, he would just do this this incessant drip drip woof 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 woof, you know, until you not even a loud woof, just an annoying, you know, like a cricket kind of going constantly. Um, and uh, so they were sit- they were sitting they were taking care of him and it was deep in winter it must have been around Christmas and uh, snow on the ground in Santa Fe bitterly cold and Corky had gotten Melody up because he had to do his business he was good about that and she had let him outside and then he started doing his his Chinese water torture bark but he wouldn't come in and she was just in her nighty and she stepped out to grab him you know by the scuff of the neck and pulled him in well the door slammed behind her. And so there she was locked outside and uh, in her nighty in freezing weather with this dog. And he was very sweet to her. He followed her around as she went around to the bedroom window and began banging on the window. Well, Bob already suffered with a severe hearing loss and he had hearing aids, but he took them out at night. So she, she and Corky were out there for quite some time before Bob realized she wasn't in bed next to him, woke up and, and let them in. And so I was informed that they would never sit Corky ever again. That he had worn worn out his welcome. Well, um, when my mom died, I had to return back to Indiana, and so they agreed under those circumstances to take Corky. And um, when I came back to pick him up, uh, Bob said, "You know, that damn dog ears uh, soiled my Navajo rug. He has this incredibly expensive Navajo rug. He had lots of wonderful art and, and collectibles." Uh, and I said, Bob, uh, Corky's got a lot of problems, but one of them is not bladder control. This dog would die before it would go to the bathroom inside. And he said, well, uh, that's not the case. Your dog peed all over my rug. Um, and then we're walking out, uh, 
and suddenly Bob kicked Corky and kicked him all the way across the room. Corky screeched, you know, and I said, geez, Bob, what? You kicked my dog. What'd you do that for? And he looked down and I looked down and Corky had lifted his <laughs> leg and just peed all over the great man's trousers. And uh, I uh, took Corky by the scruff of the neck and we made a quick exit out of there. And that was indeed the last time that Bob ever sat Corky. Uh, but every Christmas, uh, including the last, uh, every birthday, I'm sorry, every birthday, uh, including the last one, uh, Corky would send Bob a Christmas card. And so I would, I would always go around and say, Corky died many years ago, of course. Uh, and, uh, but I would find these, these Cocker Spaniel cards, you know, and write a little note, a little love note to Bob from Corky. And Corky would always get a reply from Bob, uh, referring him to an animal experimentation, uh, hospital where he should go to, uh, be tortured to death. So, uh, I don't know if Bob and Corky are together now. They might be, uh, wherever we go after, uh, we, we loosen this border coil, but, uh, he, he, uh, he sure disliked my dog, I'll tell you that. Although he's a great, they were great dog, Bob and Mel, they both always had dogs and they're big dog love, big dog lovers, so. Oh, man, that is so funny. Thank you, because it, it, you're a great storyteller. Um, and I can, I could, I got my eyes closed. I can picture it happening. That's funny. It, it brings up another question is, what was Bob like outside of the Western world or was the Western world so much of his life that he wasn't outside of it? Or was he, you know, did he do other things like build model boats or, you know, paper mache or did he have other things that he did outside of Western history? You know, his work really was his life and, um, he, he did not have, uh, hobbies, uh, so to speak. I mean, they did travel a lot. And so I, you know, for a lot of people, I mean, and they traveled extensively. So that, uh, that certainly was something they did internationally. Um, but no, it wasn't building model airplanes or anything like that. In fact, uh, on our trips, it, this always drove him nuts. Uh, I had to stop in every small town on the way if they had an antique mall, cause I'm a hopeless collector. I'm just a, I'm a hoarder, I guess. It's just terrible. And you know, Western stuff, especially like Western pop culture and stuff like that. And, uh, this just drove him nuts, uh, that, that, that he had to endure this, uh, when we traveled and he, he incessantly complained about it every, every opportunity, uh, he get, he got, but he still would stop, you know, he would always, uh, he would always stop. And, uh, so, uh, he was devoted to his work and, um, Really, uh, that was, that was his life. And you know, when your, when your life gives you, when your life's work gives you such pleasure, um, why, why would you have any other hobbies? I mean, some of us are so fortunate that our hobby is our life. I mean, I've always felt very fortunate to be able to, I'm paid to teach Western history to young people. I mean, this is wonderful. And, you know, I'm paid to write books about, uh, about the West. Now, writing for me is not as easy as it was for Bob. Bob, loved to write and he was very disciplined uh, and could write quickly. Um, it's torture for me. Uh, and so that's another thing. He was just such an inspiration because of just how he could turn out excellent prose uh, and excellently researched books in, in so quickly. You know, if you, he, he may have lived to be 92, but my goodness, 25 books, that's a lot of books and, and they're excellent books. So, um, his writing and the world of Western history really, really was his life. And, um, I would buy him, uh, like, uh, Custer stuff, you know, Custer slock, as he liked to call it, as gifts, you know, as birthday presents and stuff like that. And he would, he would smile and accept it, but it, it wasn't stuff that he treasured, you know, like I do. I, I treasure my, you know, uh, souvenir from, you know, Errol Flynn's They Died With Their Boots On movie. Uh, and, and Bob loved those movies, though, and he understood this connection between popular culture and our love of the West. It's, it's one of the reasons, in fact, that, you know, the sort of intense interest in Western history has faded over the years. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the country as we review our past. Uh, 
the limiting. It's just the, you know, they don't make TV shows. They don't make Westerns like they used to. Mm-hmm. And um, so kids aren't hooked like like I was and like Bob was. Bob saw Errol Flynn and they died with their boots on in a movie theater in 1941. And uh, that was it. He was, he was hooked, on, hooked on Custer and, and then... Custer led him to being hooked on history, and he wrote on a wide variety of topics. But Custer was always his his first love, and for six seasons he worked up at Custer Battlefield, which is what it was called then before they changed the name. Uh, he worked up there as a seasonal ranger, and um, he was instrumental in the preservation of that place. And he, in fact, secured for me a position on the committee that selected the design for the Indian Memorial for Little Bighorn Battlefield. They had changed the name, and Congress mandated the building of a memorial to the Indians that had fought there, the Sioux, the Cheyenne, and the handful of Arapaho. And um, Bob secured me that appointment by the Secretary of the Interior on that committee. Um, and he was very active, too, in uh, historic preservation efforts around the country and in blocky, misguided preservation uh, efforts as well. Uh, in fact, he wrote the guidebooks. He wrote the rules for historic preservation in our country. So uh, really important role in that world. You, you brought up movies. I would assume movies were hard for him to hear because, or to go to because of hearing. I would assume that. Um, later. Yeah, later. later. And, uh, but not, when he was young, it wasn't, you know. But uh, by the time I met Bob in 1977, his hearing loss was fairly, you know, uh, it, was, it was bad, but he still, with hearing aids, could hear fine. Uh, so it was really only... Uh, in in sort of this century, the last kind of 25 years, that it really had deteriorated. Uh, uh, and then, and so he, he closed captioning was important. You know, he had to have things closed captioned. Would, and you know, this actually gave, gave me an appreciation. Okay. My, my wife is a, a special education teacher and administrator for deaf and hard of hearing. And, and it's just a coincidence, but uh, Bob's situation had already given me a kind of an empathy that I wouldn't have had otherwise for people who um, have hearing loss, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and for the deaf community. Would he, or did he go see like movies like Tombstone or Maverick or movies that were made today that were Westerns? Would, would he go to them? With all the knowledge that he have, and sit there and go, that's not right. Oh my God, I can't. This is they're they're crazy. Did did he do that? Did he go to see popular movies that were made today? Um, you know, Bob wasn't a uh, movie buff. Like I'm a huge movie buff, um, but movies did influence him. I mean, they died with their boots on is the source of all of his love of history and you know, and of Custer, the connection with Custer. And he saw Chisholm, the John Wayne movie. Wow. Uh, uh, about Billy the Kid mm-hmm. and the Lincoln County War, and that's what got him interested in the Lincoln County War. And he wrote a book on the Lincoln County War, three, four fighters of Lincoln, uh, High Noon in Lincoln, and then, of course, his biography, Billy the Kid, and the latter being the most uh, popular of those of those three. And so, so in, the, in the Billy the Kid world, he is as much a dominant figure as he is in the Custer world in terms of uh, scholarship. And of course, he also wrote two volumes on the Texas Rangers, uh, uh, which were very important. And so he's important in that world as well. So movies did influence him. Um, I never had any, any discussions with him in which, you know, we would talk uh, talk too much about all the things that are wrong in movies because he, I think he shared pretty much my attitude toward film. If you want to be entertained, you go to the movies. If you want to learn history, you read a book. Mm-hmm. And it's a fun game, and I love to do it, to, you know, watch a Western movie or a Western TV show and uh, point out all the things that are wrong. You know, that's a, that's a little parlor game, though. But my favorite Custer movie is Fort Apache, which is, uh, they change all the names and they set it in Arizona, you know, but it's obviously Custer and Custer's Last Stand. Um, you don't have to get anything right. You know, my favorite Billy the Kid movie is Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which, you know, there are a lot of 
mistakes in it. Um, I think Young Guns is excellent too, you know. Uh, Tombstone is an excellent film, you know, except for the last 15 minutes of it where it completely goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm charmed when they get something right. I don't require it. And I think Bob was the same way. Um, and, um, but you see the power of film, of Western film, is in, in inspiring people and pulling them in and making them interested. And that's what Bob wanted to do with his writing. He wanted to write books that would pull people in and make them, make them love history just like he, he did. And I follow right along with that philosophy. That's the whole point of it. That's, uh, you write these books, you hope people read them, and you hope they get as excited as I was as a 12-year-old boy, you know, thinking about Davy Crockett and the Alamo or thinking about Custer's Last Stand. Um, that's, uh, I think that was his goal. So um, did so movies did influence him, but he was, he, and it, it, he had, he, let's just say Bob had more sophisticated taste in almost everything in life than I do, and certainly he did in film as well. Did he, did he have regrets? Not personal regrets, but professional regrets. Like, did he did he start a book? Is there a book sitting at his house? Not a book, but the manuscript for a book sitting on a computer that he started. And he, would he ever say to you, "Gosh, I I gotta go back and finish that before time runs out"? Or because writing your own obituary, which is what he did, is very truthful and accepting to the fact that we all owe life a death. And when I read his obituary, beautiful obituary, um, I actually read it several times, but did he have regrets? Um, did he ever share with you? Like I, I started this, I didn't finish that. I always wanted to do that book. I should have, I should have done more about this one. This one book that I put out in 1963, what a mess I should rewrite it. Did he have any professional regrets? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them professional regrets. And Bob never started anything he didn't finish. Mm -hmm. Although he was, he was at one time interested in uh, being a novelist. And you know, all of us, I think, uh, who write popular history feel that way. And um, he had uh, wanted to write a novel about uh, Charles Eastman, the Indian doctor who was prominent at Wounded Knee. And he wrote several chapters, and he sent them to um, Ray Billington. Uh, very important Western historian, and Chester Kerr, who was an important editor at Yale University Press to read, and they told him to stick to what he knew, So, his, uh, which is writing history. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a different ballgame. Fiction is an entirely different ballgame. So I think he was uh, you know, slightly disappointed that he couldn't uh, uh, be, uh, be a novelist or write fiction, um, but indeed, he was so successful as a writer and so successful as a historian, it wasn't much of a regret. I mean, Bob had regrets like we all have about our personal lives and things that happen. Um, but he's not, he was not the kind of person to dwell on those or brood on them. Uh, he was not a moody person. Um, and he was not a person that got depressed. Um, so it, he was a pre, you know, he wasn't, Pollyanna, he wasn't upbeat and effusive, but he uh, was very well grounded, very solid, uh, as you would expect from someone who was that disciplined. And and so uh, the only book he didn't finish, the only writing project he didn't finish, is his book on General Sherman that he was doing when he died. Mm. And um, I've talked to Melody, and and it's something that I may uh, take up when I get my current book that I'm working on done, and uh, hopefully finish up finish up for him. We have about 10 minutes left. If someone was looking into, cause there's going to be people now that will step into Western history that won't know anything about Robert M. Hutley. If there was something that you could say, like they came to you and said, um, you know, Paul, I'm thinking about reading a book of his, or I think I'm probably saying too much, like a takeaway per se, like what would be something that somebody brand new to Western history where you would say, these are the things you should do. What, this is what I recommend. This is the book that you should start with. 
where would somebody begin? Like for me, I don't own a, I've never read a single one of his books. Where should somebody like me start off in delving into the Utley Library of books of the 25 books that he's written? Sure. Well, I, you know, it depends on one's interest. If you, uh, of course, you are uh, an aficionado of uh, sort of outlaws and lawmen, uh, and that's what uh, the Wild West History Association is all about. And um, so, I would I would recommend uh, Billy the Kid. That would be the very first book. And the two Utley books I would recommend are Billy the Kid and Cavalier and Buckskin, his biography of Custer. Just uh, short books, uh, very well written. Uh, good reads, you know, entertaining reads as well as great history. And so th those would be the two Utley books. Uh, but also his two volumes on the Texas Rangers. If you're interested in the fur trade, he wrote a book called Life Wild and Perilous about uh, the fur trade in the West. Um, and then his is uh, two volumes, uh, Frontier Regulars and Frontiersmen in Blue, on the Army in the West are the beginning place for any student of Western military history. Um, his most successful book in terms of uh, sales was his uh, prize-winning biography of Sitting Bull, Lance and the Shield. And uh, all of his books have just recently been uh, reissued by the University of Nebraska Press. And so they're all available now in reasonably inexpensive editions. Uh, I'm a great book collector myself, though, of course, and so I pride myself in having... Uh, editions of first editions of all of Bob's books, and of course they're all signed to me, and so it's a, just a wonderful thing. I have a uh, a little bookcase just of nothing but Utley, and uh, wow. it's uh, it, it's a full bookcase. Uh, it was a very productive life, but not, he should he shouldn't be remembered just for his writing, and that's the thing that will live on now that he's gone. But also his incredible contribution to the National Park Service and to the whole story of historic preservation over the last uh, uh, 50 years. And then his key role in establishing the Western History Association as well. So he lived a, uh, a multifaceted life and, uh, and really impacted uh, much of our life today in ways that... Uh, I think a lot of people will not understand in the future, you know. Well, we're coming to an end on this one. This is uh, uh, Robert M. Hutley's life, um, as told by Paul Hutton. You can find Paul Hutton's book. Is your Apache Wars out now? Apache Wars, yeah, it's out. is out in paper. It was published. It was published in twenty sixteen. Okay, and. Um, it's available, you know, at Amazon, of course, in book in bookstores everywhere. Uh, I hope. And um, I'm working now on um, a big overview history of the West from uh, colonial times to 1900, um, oh. called the Undiscovered Country, and that's uh, my big pro my big project, which I'm I'm laboring on uh, these days. I'm sorry that Bob won't be around to uh, read it and critique it for me as he has all of my writings. Well, if you send it to me, I'll read it and critique it, and I'll tell you whether it sucks or not. I have no problem with all that. Right. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, do you have a website that folks can go to to see your work? I do. I do. Where can uh, I find your work? And it's just, you know, if you just, if you just uh, uh, it's the Writers Guild uh, runs uh, these websites for you, and if you just Google, you know, Paul Andrew Hutton, it pops right up. All right. I, I don't carry the you know website around in my head like right. young people do. They can rattle this stuff off. I I just type in Hutton and uh, and stuff appears. You know, it's it's, it's absolutely amazing. Well, that's good to know the Paul Andrew Hutton. So again, you can find his Apache Wars at Amazon and booksellers near you. And then the new book when it comes out, hopefully I'll get a chance to read it and tell. Mr. Hutton, whether it sucks or not, because I live in Arizona and he's in New Mexico. So if I say that, there's a big gap of desert in the middle that he can't, you know, punch me in the face. Um, of course, uh, the Western History Association, which you mentioned, I, I honestly didn't know about the WHA until I was researching 
Mr. Utley's career and it popped up on Facebook. And then I started looking into that. That's a pretty cool thing because not only do I like the outlaw and lawman, but I like history overall, Western history. Um, it's, it allows for somebody like me, the ability to look at everything because there's so much, it's not just outlaw and lawman. It's also, like you said, fur traders and people. And, and I did a podcast a while back with Marshall Trimble and Marshall speaks about, um, um, Custer and the, the national park. And, and I remember going to that park in the 1960s and was blown away as a child, the vastness of it. Now it's changed and there's visitor centers and things like that. When I was there, it was just a pull up. <clears throat> and so there's a lot to learn. So look at WHA um, on Facebook and see what they're about because they do have some fantastic things going on. Of course, my friend Mark Boardman and Eric Wright over at the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. Um, thank you, sir. I appreciate you so much for coming on. And it was very short notice. And we've only been talking just a few days. And uh, my head tells me I, I want to go back and put him on speakerphone and listen for another two hours because he's really got a great, got a great dynamic voice and uh, some fantastic history to share. Um, as always... Um, there's, there's so much going on in the world today. Find a charity near you. Of course, I talk about St. Mary's Food Bank here in Phoenix. If you're thinking about a charity where nearly every dollar is spent, find a food bank in any town that you live in and just donate a little bit. 20 bucks usually can feed like 140 people or make 140 meals. And food banks today with what's going on in the world, here we are in 2022 in June, and uh, folks are needing food more than ever because expenses are so high and gas and whatnot. So give to a food bank near you or find any charity near you and just donate, even volunteer because they can really appreciate it. Um, anything that you'd like to say within the next minute? Are we good to go? Uh, thank you very much for having me, and I uh, appreciate it. And I hope folks will uh, take a look at Bot's books, and, and I hope that that will inspire them to read more about the history of the American West, which is something I love dearly. All righty. Well, I appreciate it a bunch. Thank you, sir. Until next time, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.